morning and welcome to Her Turn, a program of news and information by and about women. I'm Amber Walker. And I'm Kathy Lynn. On today's program, the UW women's hockey team starts a boycott for equal treatment. Millions will lose health care under Trump health care plan. The forces of homophobia are in high gear under the new Trump administration. Afghanistan has its first women's orchestra. In a rare protest, women march for reproductive rights in Angola. And Aboriginal women in Australia face widespread discrimination. Stay tuned for all of this and more on the Sunday, March 19th, 2017 edition of Her Turn News. The United States women's hockey team will boycott the International Ice Hockey Federation's World Championship Tournament this month if they do not receive increased financial and training support from USA Hockey, the sport's governing body. The March 31st tournament is the sport's second most important besides the Olympic Games. The women's hockey team said they are looking for the same access to opportunity in the sport as their male counterparts. A press release from the team's lawyers said that female players only received $6,000 from USA Hockey during the Olympic year and substantially less during non-Olympic years. Some players work two additional jobs while training to compete internationally, a burden, they said, is not placed on male players. Since 1990, the women's team placed first or second in the World Championship Tournament and has won five Olympic medals. In the same time period, the men's team has won third place four times in the tournament and two Olympic medals. Despite better records, the women argue that they do not have access to the same endorsement opportunities as men and have fewer opportunities to compete during non-Olympic years. The team said they were not invited to participate in a recent Nike jersey endorsement deal that issued the men's Olympic gold medal wins and neglected the women's success. Endorsements like the Nike deal are key financial opportunities for athletes to earn money outside of training stipends. In addition to increased financial support, the women's team calls for USA Hockey to increase training and development programs for younger athletes. The governing body just invested $3.5 million in the last two years to update facilities for its national team development program, which recruits and trains teenage hockey players for competition in the NHL or Olympic Games. There is no equivalent program for women. The women's team said it's their duty to younger generations of hockey players to call for increased support of the sport. USA Hockey said in a statement that they are committed to developing the sport for men and women, and it is not the duty of the body to employ athletes. Recently, there have been a slew of scandals involving the handling of sexual assault within the USA Olympic gymnastic teams. New reports show that more than 80 women's experiences of sexual assault are tied back to an individual doctor who traveled with the Olympic women's team between the years of 1997 and 2005. Athletes are filing lawsuits that allege that one doctor sexually abused the young women during medical appointments, assaulted girls as young as 12 on Michigan State University's campus and a gymnastics club in Michigan, as well as places he traveled during his time with the USA Gymnastics teams. The USA Gymnastics president resigned on the same afternoon in the wake of the allegations, stating that he could no longer work for an organization that allowed such actions. Between 2014 and 2015, the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights was conducting an investigation into how MSU had handled sexual misconduct complaints. A complaint against this physician emerged that he sexually assaulted someone seeking care for hip hip pain. Other officials within the university deny these women's claims, and the physician himself has not pleaded guilty of any of the charges.
A startling new report from the Congressional Budget Office is projecting 24 million Americans will lose health insurance coverage by 2026 under the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. 14 million people will lose health insurance in the next year alone. While the White House rejected the CBO's findings, Politico is reporting the White House's own analysis predicts 26 million people will lose coverage under the bill over the next decade. The CBO also found that premiums would initially skyrocket for some Americans under the Republican plan. The agency said a 64-year-old making around $26,000 a year would see their previous premiums jump 700 percent from 1700 under the Obamacare to over 14000 a year under the Republican bill. According to the CBO, the bill would reduce the deficit by $337 billion. But one of the biggest beneficiaries of the Republican bill would be millionaires. According to new research by the Tax Policy Center, people in the top 0.1% would get a tax cut of about $207,000 under the plan. U.S. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi accused Republicans of attempting to push through the biggest transfer of wealth in the nation's history. The CBO has reported that the Republican bill pushes 24 million people out of health care, off of health coverage. This is a remarkable figure. It speaks so eloquently to the cruelty of the bill that the speaker calls an act of mercy. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to all the people who will lose coverage, to people who will lose jobs, to the hospitals uh, that may have to close down, especially in rural areas. I don't know if he thinks it's an act of mercy to people on opioid addiction and other addictions who are looking to Medicaid as an answer, as many of the Republican governors have spoken to. This is, okay, so they're taking 24 million people, pushing them off their coverage. And as they do so, they are in, uh, implementing the biggest transfer of wealth in our history. $600 billion going from working families to the richest people and corporations in our country. Elizabeth Benjamin, Vice President of Health Initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York and co-founder of Health Care for All, discussed the issue on Tuesday's Democracy Now! I mean, it's simply devastating for low-income people and for working people. The, what they're going to do is rob $880 billion from the Medicaid program. They're going to rob $673 million in tax, carrying, tax um, credits and subsidies from middle and working income people and pay for tax cuts to the very wealthy in an order of around $600 billion. So it's just these are extraordinary numbers. Um, I don't think people understand that 41 percent of the people on Medicaid are children. The remainder are elderly people with disabilities, and very low-income wage earners. Um, I was helping a woman recently who wor used to work in a, a, a very high-end um, uh, uh, department store, and now she got a bad knee from standing up so much in her department store work, and then now works in a coffee shop. And she makes around $16,000 a year. She's on Medicaid. Medicaid has saved her life. She's been able to get the treatment for her knee, and she's been able to keep working. She's in her 50s. If she were to, she is going to go from having free health care on Medicaid that's helping low-wage workers to a $16,000 health insurance plan. It's insane. And you can't afford, basically, to pay what you earn. However, 
wealthy people will be getting an incredible tax cut. So the Peterson Institute for International Economics just released a, a statement saying people who make $1 million will be getting a $12,900 tax cut, while the people who are earning $26,000 who are older will be getting a 12000 insurance rate hike. This is not fair, it's not right, and it's unethical. Democracy Now! can be heard five days a week on WORT and all the time at democracynow.org. Women in the financial industry are up to 27% more likely to be fired than men, despite the fact that men tend to engage in three times as much misconduct. The research published by the National Bureau of Economic Research suggests that that financial firms discriminate against women by imposing harsher punishments for missteps. Wells Fargo ranked the lowest, followed by SunTrust Investment Services, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America Investment Services, and J.P. Morgan Securities. The paper, titled When Harry Fired Sally, looked into possibilities of female advisors engaging in more harmful behavior and performing less productively than male advisors, which would cause more women to be dismissed. However, the report instead found that men not only engage in more misconduct, but they also tend to repeat their offenses, and women are just as productive as men. Moreover, male executives inflict more severe punishment on women and tend to hire fewer females with such a record. Women face harmful gender stereotypes that perceive them to be either too tough or too soft for work. On the other hand, the male-heavy financial industry has a culture where men are forgiven more generously because of a shared notion that boys will be boys. On Monday, the State Department announced the delegation that will represent the U.S. at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women includes members of the Center for Family and Human Rights and the Heritage Foundation. Both groups have expressed opposition to the rights of LGBTQ people. The Center for Family is listed as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and CFAM was formed explicitly to counteract the rights of women in UN policies and resolutions. The Heritage Foundation has advanced the idea that advocating for the protections of transgender people amounts to discriminatory special privileges. Although the Commission on the Status of Women will not make any policy changes at their 12-day convention, the meeting is seen as the place where countries express their commitment to human rights and gender equality. LGBTQ advocates are worried that representatives from the Heritage Foundation and CFAM attending the convention will undo their work to advance the rights of marginalized groups. The LGBT community warns that U.S. Circuit Judge Neil Gorsuch will jeopardize rights and liberties if he is voted into the U.S. Supreme Court. 21 LGBT organizations opposing his nomination addressed a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee saying, quote, We have conducted that his views on civil rights issues are fundamentally at odds with the notion that LGBT people are entitled to equality, liberty, justice, and dignity under the law, end quote. The groups demand the committee interrogate him rigorously during the confirmation hearings, which will begin on Monday. Although Gorsuch has not directly ruled on same-sex marriage, he claims to be an originalist who believes that interpretations of the Constitution should be fixed based on the first intent. This view leaves the LGBT community in doubt that their rights would be protected. In 2005, he wrote a National Review article criticizing American liberals for seeking advancements in courts, indicating his dissent over same-sex marriage. He also sided with Hobby Lobby in denying providing reproductive health care benefits to employees 
in favor of the employer's religious freedom. His nomination threatens at-risk communities' rights, including protection for transgender students and people living with HIV-AIDS. Senate Democrats are expected to filibuster or impede the process to approve Gorsuch. Last week, the South Dakota governor signed a bill into law that allows taxpayer-funded adoption agencies to deny services to LGBT people. The bill was framed by lawmakers as a protection of religious rights, and it specifically states that religious-based adoption agencies can turn away people who behave in a way that conflicts with their religious beliefs or moral convictions. Now other states, such as Alabama and Tennessee, are jumping on the bandwagon. These bills make it clear that adoption agencies can't discriminate against people based on race, ethnicity, or national origin, but make no mention of sexual orientation. The Alabama House of Representatives voted Thursday to protect adoption organizations that refuse to place children with gay parents and other types of households for religious reasons. Meanwhile, in Tennessee, a bill was also pushed through the House of Representatives last week that proponents are calling, quote, sneaky LGBT erasure, end quote. The bill's language is written to state that advocates of the bill are simply following the law and is going back to the Senate for third and final consideration. LGBTQ advocates against the bill believe that this could affect gay marriage and adoption laws. The bill is similar to previous bills that focus on the words husband, wife, mother, and father be given their, quote, natural and ordinary meaning without forced or subtle construction, end quote. These types of bills against LGBTQ people can lead to other restrictive bills. For example, Kentucky schools may soon have a license to discriminate against LGBTQ students, Currently, a bill is sitting on the desk of the Kentucky governor that could allow student-run organizations in colleges and K-12 schools to deny membership to classmates based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. The stated purpose of the legislation to prevent people of faith from having their political or religious opinions silenced in schools. Advocates against these types of bills argue that it has the potential to promote anti-LGBTQ bigotry in the name of faith. Progress towards gender equity in Saudi Arabia, a nation that regularly scores poorly on gender rights, is never straightforward. For example, this past week, the governor of Qasim, a province in Saudi Arabia, unveiled a new, quote, girls' council, which aims to provide more opportunities for women. Such a council is the first of its kind in a kingdom where women are not allowed to drive cars, travel, work, or study abroad without a man's consent, and many public buildings still have sex-segregated entrances. Yet pictures of the first meeting of this council were disheartening, as they depicted a room full of men. Women serving on the council were in a separate room and connected to the meeting through a video feed. This is due to state policy that prohibits unrelated men and women from mixing. Even the governor's wife and head of the council, Princess Abur bint Salman, was not permitted to be in the room, attending also through a video feed. The establishment of the Girls' Council is one of a series of recent attempts to make change for Saudi Arabian women. 
These efforts have been brought on by recent economic struggles in the country. Those spearheading changes argue that women can make valuable contributions to the economy if they were given more freedom to make choices about their work and schooling. There are even plans to increase women's participation in the labor force from 22% to 30% by the year 2030. However, many Saudi women are not waiting around to see the results of these efforts. Researchers have estimated that over 1,000 Saudi women per year escape this restrictive regime by simply running away. Some refuse to return home after a family vacation abroad. Others delay their return home from study abroad indefinitely. Other women even offer themselves as wives to men who are willing to whisk them out of the country. Economists estimate that Saudi Arabia could be losing up to $5 billion annually just through female students studying abroad who refuse to return home. While there are certainly incentives in place for gender reform in the kingdom, it remains to be seen whether true progress will occur. The debate over Muslim women's rights to wear the hijab has now reached the top court in the European Union. On Tuesday, the European Court of Justice ruled that employer policy prohibiting their employees from wearing visible religious or political symbols is not an act of discrimination. However, if a pre existing policy does not exist, it would be discriminatory if the employer asked an employee to remove a symbol in response to a customer complaint. While some argue that this ruling is, quote, neutral, end quote, and does not single out specific employees or religions, Others have called this a thinly veiled attempt at targeting Muslim women for their choices. The rulings came in response to two cases of Muslim women who were dismissed from their jobs for wearing a hijab. In one case, a woman was dismissed under a company's existing policy and thus was ruled as non discriminatory. In the second case, the woman was dismissed after a customer complaint, which was ruled as discriminatory. Many have spoken out against such a ruling. They argue that asking a woman to take off her hijab is a fundamentally different request from asking one to take off a cross pendant. Such a ruling effectively forces Muslim women to choose between their religious and social identities and their ability to work. As former UN Youth Delegate for Belgium, Warda El Kaduri writes, quote, The ECJ has chosen to protect companies instead of citizens, end quote. And Nadia Kadishi, a member of the Forum of European Muslim Youth Questions, why must the visibility of Muslim women be criminalized? Over one million Muslims in India signed a petition to ban the triple talaq, a process outlined in the Quran that enables men to divorce their wives by uttering the word talaq three times. Opponents to triple talaq said the practice destabilizes married women when their husbands declare divorce and force them out of their homes without the three month introspection and counseling period that the Quran calls for. Reports also state that in recent years, men have declared talaq via email or text message. Although India has one of the largest Muslim populations on earth, it is one of the few remaining countries that has not outlawed this practice. In the majority Muslim countries of Pakistan and Indonesia, triple talaq has been outlawed for decades. The petition to outlaw triple talaq was started by a political organization dedicated to Muslim outreach that is linked to India's prime minister. Despite support to end triple talaq, those who support the practice argue that spousal killings may increase if men do not feel they can easily divorce their wives. Afghanistan remains one of the most difficult places in the world to be a woman, 
although the country has taken steps to advance women's rights, according to the special representative of the U.N. Secretary General for the country. The government recently launched a plan that recognizes women as key economic actors whose contribution to the country's future is important. Jocelyn Sambara of UN Radio's Gender Focus has more. Sixteen years ago, the Taliban ruled Afghanistan with an iron fist, depriving people of their rights, freedom, and dignity, the chair of the council's Independent Human Rights Commission said during the Security Council monthly debate on the country. Women were lashed in public, schools and offices were closed to them, and they couldn't go shopping without a male family member accompanying them, Sima Simar said. Today, more girls have access to an education. They make up 30 percent of the 8 million children now enrolled in school. Afghan authorities have also made efforts to advance women's participation in public life. Here's Ms. Samar of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. The government has taken concrete steps in giving women the opportunity to apply for high office and the number of women on the key cabinet and government position has increased. Women are striving for equality, justice, recognition, and meaningful participation in government. And they have had some success. But despite all the advances made, she deplored that women are still not treated equally. Women are victims of violence, and it remains a very sad story of our time. Violence against women is committed at home, in the society, and by terrorist groups in very barbaric way. The lack of a strong rule of law system Harmful traditions and a continued culture of impunity remain factors contributing to violence against women, Sima Simar added. Her office issued its annual report on violence against women to coincide with the International Women's Day on March 8. is Afghanistan's first all-female orchestra, the first to learn music in the country in over 30 years. The orchestra features 30 women and girls aged 14 to 20 and is named after a Persian literature goddess of music. It is hoped to help revive Afghanistan's traditional musical heritage following decades of war. The orchestra's members play European instruments as well as traditional South Asian instruments such as the sitar and the tabla. Their repertoire ranges from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to traditional Afghan folk songs. Two young women conduct the orchestra. Many of the orchestra's members are students at the Afghan National Institute of Music in Kabul, which reserves half of its positions for girls and homeless or orphaned students. Under Taliban rule, music was banned, musicians were exiled, and girls educated in music was forbidden, and security for girls and the school is still a major concern with some girls facing death threats, even from their own families. All of the music on today's program, besides the introduction by pianist Junko Onishi and her trio, was performed by Zoha and the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, during their recent European tour. <laughs> 